you immediately recognize, you know, kind of what you're going through. And then you start to kind of have those thoughts of, okay, you know, this might be my last 30 seconds on earth. And you think about your friends and family and experiences and also, you know, what might be coming next if you pass in the next realm and sort of have to interview with the big man. All tests and everything considered, I was in surgery in about nine hours, which is a pretty good window. And how long was the surgery, do you know? I think that was about another eight or nine hours. I sort of use the analogy, if you require 100 steps to death, I walked about 99 of them, and then in reverse, you start on doing that and go 99, 98, 97, 96, and, and start to walk again, and eventually be able to like tie a shoelace, which took me about 90 minutes initially after several days of fails and then, you know, feed yourself and all those things. You know, instead wound up in this scenario where, you know, your kind of career is vaporized and at least, you know, momentarily and, and you still need a lot of care and yet I'm in a different system and you can't seem to get it. And so like, I'm showing up every day to the hospital. My mom's driving me and dropping me off there and you're just kind of sitting in lobbies and waiting and begging and and can't even really seem to get into uh, the places that you need to. And then, you know, I just sort of thought back on this quote that I'd heard before my accent really loved. It was just, you know, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Just sort of at that point, just went home and got on the internet and started looking at alternative ways to get therapy for neurological injuries and found some amazing resources and really grew out what I needed from the point that I was at that time. And it was kind of like the low point of the whole journey. And then, you know, from there, everything started to kind of move forward. I found this fascinating. I looked up the book after you told me about it. I just wrote down this, this thing that I wanted to read out, which was the aftermath of survival. The survival experience changes everything because it invalidates all previous adaptations and the old rules don't apply. Some survivors suffer more in the aftermath than they did during the crisis and all have to work hard to reinvent themselves. What was your reinvention? My name's Dr. Gary Crotez and I'm a coach, podcaster and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today's episode is really an incredible story. I had the great pleasure of being introduced to Mike Ott, a few weeks ago, and I know this is going to be one very memorable conversation. A rising star in the hedge fund industry in New York, in 2019, Mike experienced an event that in just one moment changed everything. 
Today we're going to hear from him about his journey and how it transformed his outlook on life. I'm not going to say any more. I want to hear the story told in Mike's own words. Mike Ott, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you for having me on. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. So take me back to that time. We're only going back three or four years, shortly before the onset of the pandemic, immediately before the event that we're going to come on and talk about. What was your life like? What was going on for you? Right. Yeah, quite a bit of time now. And also it feels like just yesterday. But um, I was right on my way to turning 30. I was in my eighth year uh, in my career in the financial industry. I had joined a newly formed hedge fund about uh, two years ago. And I just received my third promotion. Everything was kind of on the up and up. Um, I was working on the research and trading side of our team and had just taken over that side of our operations um, and was living in New York City and walking to work and kind of living the dream that I had set out to achieve at that point in my life. Fantastic. And how old were you around this time? Uh, I was a couple weeks away from turning 30 or a couple weeks past turning 30. Sorry. And you must remember that day very vividly. Bring us into that moment of this, this event. What, what, what happened? Yeah, so I was a couple weeks past turning 30 and was, um, you know, sort of finally in a lull in a summer after what had been a very busy year and a pretty volatile year in the financial markets and was starting to take some weekends away and sort of enjoy myself again and see some friends and um, had just walked into work on a Friday and had a pretty calm day and finished an investment pitch that I had been working on and then got on a train to go see some friends. Um, it was July 26th and got to a friend's house. Then, you know, as happens, we decided to go for a swim later at night and um, dove into a body of shallow water. And immediately you just heard this thud. There was no other sensation. Everything below my neck just sort of instantly turned off. Um, and I was kind of face down in the water and you could sort of see your arms dangling there. And I knew pretty much right away what had happened, that I was quadriplegic. And uh, if I wasn't rescued, I was about to drown. And what happened? So, so you were you were floating face down in the water at that time, floating face down in the water, and you immediately recognize, you know, kind of what you're going through, and then you start to kind of have those thoughts of, okay, you know, this might be my last thirty seconds on Earth, and you think about your friends and family and experiences, and also, you know, what might be coming next if you pass in the next realm, and sort of have to interview with the big man, um, and then thankfully, um, my good, you know, one of my good friends kind of came in and, and put his arms underneath him and I couldn't feel any of this happening, um, but slowly sort of turned me over and supported my neck and did all the right things. And all of a sudden, you know, as, instead of drowning, you're looking up at the starry night sky and uh, they kind of held me there in the water, which was another crucial decision, um, you know, moving as little of my neck as possible um, until they called an ambulance and waited for rescue. Wow. I mean, unbelievable story. And, and what do you remember in that moment looking up at the stars? Uh, it was, a, you know, a whole rush of things. I mean, you're very, very grounded in the moment in a way. There's so much going on and going through your mind. And, um, you know, one of the things I remember is just thinking that this is my reality now. I didn't know anything about incomplete spinal cord injuries, which was what had happened to me at that time. Um, so my whole body had shut down, but I still had a lot of spinal cord intact. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to be quadriplegic now for the rest of my life. And I need to be the best sort of friend and family member that I can be. And it's going to be different. But this is my new starting point. 
And then I remember, you know, a pretty universal sense of calm amongst the group. We had a guy that could play the guitar and played a few songs to keep us all occupied while the paramedics came. Um, but those are sort of the initial reactions. And then, you know, as soon as you're taken away in the ambulance, you're given some sedatives and, and things start to get pretty blurry from there. And what's so striking for me as you tell this story is that it's in the moment and it must have been a massive shock, you know, completely unexpected this was happening. And yet there's some pretty big thoughts going through your, your head at that, at that time. Yeah, especially in regards to friends and family. I mean, I remember thinking, you know, about just my parents and the huge impact that this was going to have on their lives and, you know, everybody around you. I mean, one of the things that you learn going through these accidents is it absolutely takes an enormous village to put somebody back together and bring you back to the life that I now enjoy. But at the onset, you know, it's a large, you know, I'll say burden that falls on the people that are closest to you. And so you get into the hands of the medics, and then what happens? So then they take me away, and you wind up in this emergency room environment, and you're kind of strapped to a board, and everything's immobilized, and I can't move anyway, and you're just kind of waiting. And so, you know, the hours are just sort of going by, and it just feels like eternity. You don't really know what's going on, and, um, you know, eventually they come and take an MRI and try and get an idea of what's happened. And, and they come out of that and they start to take some of the supports away and try and test some of my limbs. And they're sort of pulling on like a hand or a foot and saying, you know, can you resist or can you move this or that? And it's all just zeros across the board. There's nothing. And they came back to me and said, you know, your C5 is fractured. There's damage in three through six. You have a spinal cord injury. The only way that we think you really have, you know, any chances to get into surgery. And that was sort of a no brainer decision. We said, okay, go for it right there. Um, but all in all, you know, these accidents, obviously you want to get into surgery as quickly as possible. And I was enormously lucky to be about a 20 minute ambulance ride from university of Maryland. And then all tests and everything considered I was in surgery in about nine hours, which is a pretty good window. So nine hours was the, was the time from the accident to, to being in, in the operating theater. From impact to anesthesia, yeah. And how long was the surgery? Do, do you know? I think that was about another eight or nine hours. Wow. There was a large team of neurosurgeons in there, and they have to take out four vertebrae in your neck and replace them with four titanium ones and make sure that they're not doing any further spinal cord damage and put you on a ventilator and all kinds of things need to happen. So that was a long one. Right. And, and when you came out from surgery, you're then in intensive care for a, for a time, I'm sure. A couple weeks in the ICU and coming out of it's strange. You sort of come in these phases and there's no real one particular moment of, ah, I'm awake now and I'm out of surgery. How great. You know, well, it wasn't quite like getting my wisdom teeth out. Um, but, you know, you're a respiratory doctor. So I was on a ventilator, right? You can't communicate with the outside world. You have this tube down your throat. Um, and then there's a lot of sort of hallucination going on. I mean, you would just see like a whole, you know, kind of room go yellow and then you'd be able to see again. and um, you'd kind of hear people around you. And um, again, you're just kind of staring up at the ceiling. And every once in a while, someone would come check on you or they'd let like a parent into the room. But, um, you know, again, you would sort of communicate by hearing whatever the person in the room had to say. And then a nurse would hold a keyboard in front of your face, like a laminated paper one, and run a finger across it, starting in sort of the top left corner. And then you'd blink when you got to the letter that you wanted to use to spell words. You'd spell things out that way, which was 
pretty frustrating for a while until the vent came out. Must be massively disorientating to be in that environment for, for that long in that way. Yes. One of the first, I think maybe the first major milestone I remember was just getting the ventilator out and being able to breathe and speak again. And you're definitely raspy and dry and, you know, it feels pretty awful still, but just being able to have that ability to communicate was an enormous one and probably the first mile marker for me. And when, when did people start to talk about prognosis? They did it behind closed doors initially um, for, you know, their own reasons. But I think about a week after surgery, the docs huddled with my parents and said, you know, we think he might be able to walk in a year. So that was the initial prognosis. And I was told nothing. I mean, pain starts to come back. So there's a, a pretty massive incision that goes down the back of your neck and certainly above where the spinal cord damage is, you can start to feel that. And you're also laying on top of it and it's in a neck brace. So, um, you know, you start to just kind of have to fight through that on your own. Um, and, you know, prognosis was kind of kept away from me for a while. And the pain is pretty significant as, as you start to recover. That was unlike anything I had felt before. And I, I had had like broken bones and, you know, all sorts of things and ligament injuries and other surgeries on shoulders and stuff like that. But, um, you know, thankfully, I did start to get my sense of sensation to return. And when it does, it's, you know, a whole other world of pain that I hadn't experienced before. At what point did you start to re-engage with what's going on outside the hospital and, and your life and career and, and, and the impact on all of that? So one of the things that um, my very good friend did incredibly well in collaboration with my mom was almost immediately, you know, sit down with her at two or three in the morning and make this massive Excel spreadsheet and send out a huge email blast and just start getting people to visit in droves. Um, and so obviously I was still kind of strapped to a bed and couldn't move anyway. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, sort of in con conjunction with my ventilator coming out, I had this huge stream of visitors coming. So pretty much any time that I could be awake and with it, I had somebody to talk to. Um, and it was pretty fascinating. It's almost like going to your own funeral, but you can interact with everybody. And so you had some of these just amazing laughs about, you know, stories and things that we had done together. And it really was this incredible bonding moment that I, I still remember each and every person that came through and kind of what we talked about, what it was like, and them just kind of sitting there and, and just some of these amazing, very unfiltered conversations that you can have in that context. And that's sort of when I started to re-engage with my social life. And then, you know, career kind of started to come into it later on um, down the line. But obviously, you know, I was sort of in a key position in my fund and my parents had to, you know, call my boss and say, here's what happened. And they kind of had to scramble to put some emergency players in place as well. So in the short term, they managed to, you know, navigate around and give you cover. Obviously, you, you know, you were unable to go into work when, you know, you were in your recovery phase. How did that go over time? Yeah, and thankfully, it was a pretty calm time um, in the markets. And we had lived through some not so calm times. I had been working to build out a team underneath me. So they had a bench of hires already and, and brought some people in. Um, and then, you know, you kind of go through a few more months in the hospital. And, and I had to go to a whole specialized facility after intensive care where you're basically living there. Um, and that was a couple months of, you know, waking up in a hospital bed every day. You get put in a um, basically crane that lifts you up in a wheelchair and they take you down into a facility and you're training for, you know, three, four hours a day with specialized PTs and harnesses, just learning how to walk again. And, um, and again, like how to lift like a fork to mouth and 
all these basic functions are kind of what I'm trying to get back for a couple months. And then, um, you know, I kind of stepped away from, from work entirely. They were just sort of running, you know, parallel while I was, you know, being rebuilt essentially. And the, and you, you were progressing positively with your rehab at that time. Yes, very much so. Um, so I started to kind of come out ahead of the initial prognosis schedule. And um, amazingly, I, I was in this facility called Spalding Rehab in Boston, which I would go to again if I had to live through this all over again, which hopefully I do not. Um, but uh, they were absolutely incredible. And you started to see these pretty amazing gains day to day where you show up there and you, again, you really can't do anything. You're completely immobilized. But first they just try and get you to stand up and they have other people holding about 90% of your body weight. And then they'll put you in a harness and kind of manually have PTs lifting one foot, placing it in front of the other. And then eventually, you know, I sort of use the analogy, if you require a hundred steps to death, I walked about 99 of them. And then in reverse, you start on doing that and go 99, 98, 97, 96. And and start to walk again and, and, um, you know, eventually be able to like tie a shoelace, which took me about 90 minutes initially after several days of fails and then, you know, feed yourself and all those things. But after a couple of months there, I was able to, um, to kind of walk out the front door enough steps to get from the elevator to a taxi cab. Um, and then also kind of lift a fork to mouth and sort of do all the essentials, which was pretty amazing. So, I mean, it's interesting your reflection there on on mortality. You know, ninety nine steps out of a hundred to to mortality. You've you've you really felt that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you're kind of not breathing on your own, not moving on your own, and and only kind of see intermittently between hallucinations, you're pretty close. Mm-hmm. And how did that change your outlook on on life at that time? I think at that specific time, you're just trying to kind of fight through the moments and hours. You're trying to do what you need to do. Um, but, you know, again, I kind of go back to that huge group of people that showed up in the hospital for me. Um, and it really, you know, unveiled to me of like, okay, you know, I have a lot to live for. There's a huge community of people out there that I love spending time with, and they're all out doing interesting things with their lives. And that's what I want to get back to. And so, um, you know, I think there are some, kind of key ingredients for fulfillment, right? It's like one of them is the relationships in your life. And that's kind of the most important cornerstone, I think. And having all those people show up gave me a ton of motivation to get back to where I wanted to be. And then, you know, another one is just like a a focus or something to draw your energy. Um, And, you know, career and being able to build and all those things were were certainly aspirations that I held at that time. Um, and then just being able to kind of get out and move and enjoy yourself and be in nature, you know, that's another thing that I really like. And so, you know, all those things were huge motivators for me. Um, and, you know, that was sort of a pretty driving force that I wanted to get back and enjoy my life to the fullest. And so when did your focus start to move from the moment to moment, day to day rehabilitation process to starting to look more to the future and outside of the, and outside of the rehabilitation journey. It's really, you know, you see me today, right. And I'm out kind of walking and working and traveling and doing all these things. And you think, well, how do you get from, you know, the condition that we were just describing here now, right. And it all happens in a very linear process. So I would say the kind of focus went in tandem with the physical recovery and physically, you know, for a period of about two years, you're, 
kind of going all in on just getting your appointments and doing the rehab that you need to do. And, you know, you just try and walk and then you try and walk a hundred steps and then you try and do 150 and then, you know, you get a little bit more aspirational and, and try and go further distances and you're trying to build your strength. But um, that only happens by kind of putting in the intense, you know, many, many hours of work every day for that two year period. And, um, you know, I'd say the focus kind of moves along with that. So initially, um, especially, you know, the first year, uh, my work had actually sort of let me go, which was tough at the time. Um, after a 90 day period, they said, you know, okay, you know, we're going to move on now. Um, and my focus just went all in on getting well. And then, um, you know, COVID also kind of was a bit of a distraction where you start to think about, okay, I'm going to return to my life. And I live in New York City at that time, which obviously was hit very hard by the pandemic. And, um, you know, it sort of derailed some of those ambitions that I'd had about getting back to career and and things at that time, and just sort of put the emphasis back on getting well again. Um, But, you know, I, I just channeled that energy back in other physical pursuits, like learning to run again. And, um, different things that you know weren't part of the spinal cord inter- injury syllabus, but that I wanted to do on my own. And then I'd say after about the two-year mark, the aperture sort of widens up, and and you start to think about, okay, you know, I can really go live my life now. What do you do? So bring me into that moment. So ninety days after the accident, and your work says we're going to let you go. So how did that leave you feeling? Ah, uh, it's tough, right? I mean, you you know you'd gone through a, a pretty good rounded up place and, um, you know, been promoted several times and helped build out the team and everything. And so obviously, you know, that's, that's a hard scenario, but, um, you know, choices were made and, and you kind of got to get on with it. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as waking up in an ICU bed or whatever, or, you know, any sort of misfortune in life, it just is what it is. And, and, um, you know, you're kind of starting to get to, maybe a potential unlock moment there, but it happened pretty briefly after that where, you know, I was still very banged up physically. I just, you know, lost my position that I'd, you know, worked hard to get to and had actually just moved to Florida, which I thought was going to be a big benefit to be able to be in the warm weather and kind of move and exercise outside. The cold's very tough on neurological injury. And then, um, you know, instead wound up in this scenario where, you know, your kind of career is vaporized and at least, you know, momentarily and, and you still need a lot of care. And yet I'm in a different system and you can't seem to get it. And so like, I'm showing up every day to the hospital. My mom's driving me and dropping me off there. And you're just kind of sitting in lobbies and waiting and begging and, and can't even really seem to get into a, the places that you need to. And then, you know, I just sort of thought back on this quote that I'd heard before my accident really loved. It was just, you know, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Um, and, you know, sort of at that point, just went home and got on the internet and started looking at alternative ways to get therapy for neurological injuries and found some amazing resources and, and really grew out what I needed from the point that I was at that time. And it was pretty much straight uphill from there with a lot of ebbs and flows and ups and downs, obviously. But, um, you know, I'd say that was kind of like the low point of, of the whole journey. And then, you know, from there, everything started to kind of move forward. And this is something that for me is really fascinating about this story, because when we talked before, and I said, when was your unlock moment? And I was kind of imagining that you were going to say, you know, it was waking up after, or your, you know, or coming round, looking at the stars after the after the accident you described before. But actually, you said your unlock moment was this moment. A hundred days after the accident, you've just lost your job, you've just lost your insurance. Um, you know, you're you're facing into 
the journey ahead. And as you described there, that was your low point, but that was also your unlock moment. Yeah, I think it was the one where I really stumbled into the mentality that I would need for the long run, right? Where the sprint was over, you were kind of out of the hospital and and in there you have all the care that you need and you have people looking after you, it's highly organized. Then you're sort of thrown out into this chaotic real world environment and that takes a major adjustment. And that was sort of in that moment where I found, okay, you know, if I can sort of stick to this formula, at least that's going to be a good way forward for me. And when we talked before, you used this great phrase about embracing uncertainty that in that moment there's more uncertainty than there's been before because as you described you're coming out of that quite regimented structure of the first kind of 90 days of your care yeah um and you're in kind of a survival state of mind which is very different than everyday life right i mean it's kind of frenetic and you know use a metaphor i mean you're just trying to stay above the water while the sharks are circling right and um, it helps to just kind of calm yourself and bring yourself into that moment and realize, you know, you're not going to be able to escape this by clawing at the walls or whatever. I mean, this is just sort of where you are. And, and the moment that you can sort of accept that and get comfortable in it, you'll start to be able to see all the resources and, and um, things that are available to you around you. Tell me about this, this book, Surviving Survival. Uh, that was one that was actually given to me, um, you know, thankfully right at about the two year mark where, you know, life started to broaden out after just sort of rehab. And I had done some initial travels and sort of been out in the world and, and really started to kind of enjoy, but also was stuck with the question of kind of, okay, you know, how do you survive survival? How do you get beyond, you know, this accident and sort of back into your life? And for anyone going through something similar or anyone, you know, just kind of curious for a really good piece on survival mindset versus everyday life and how you bridge the gap. I think it was an incredible read. Uh, It was by an author named Lawrence Gonzalez and basically tells a bunch of stories like mine and um, other people that have survived, you know, bear attacks or alligator attacks or, you know, things that are, are sort of, you know, pretty extreme. And then what do successful people do along the way to get back to a place where they're, you know, living a happy, fulfilling life. Um, And at the end kind of summarizes a bunch of those steps, but um, for me, you know, a few of them that stood out on my own, you know, with or without that book was just kind of gratitude and, and accepting where you are and being grateful for the people that you do have in your life, for the resources that you do have. Um, and then just working at it, right. Just the consistency of just stay on the go. And there are going to be certain days where you don't want to do it, but find a way to keep track of it and make yourself show up because, you know, without just putting in a huge amount of work and using that focus, you kind of regress back into this, you know, frenetic sort of survival state with nowhere to channel that energy. And that, that's sort of a negative recipe. I found this fascinating. I looked up the book after you told me about it. And uh, I just wrote down this, this thing that I wanted to read out, which was um, the aftermath of survival. The survival experience changes everything because it invalidates all previous adaptations and the old rules don't apply. Some survivors suffer more in the aftermath than they did during the crisis and all have to work hard to reinvent themselves. What, what was your reinvention? Yeah, fair enough. So, um, you know, the survival state is, you know, your work is cut out for you and you know what it is, right? It's like you kind of have to stay alive and then you have to, um, you have to, you know, do the work and then all of a sudden you survive and, and you have, you know, your 
brain and mind and experiences from your previous life. And yet you're dealing with a new reality, right? As you have a different body, you've moved around, you have different life experiences, you're, you know, different career changes. I mean, these things just cause all sorts of life shifts that you then, um, you know, it's like a bunch of unpaid bills that stack up, right? It's like all these changes are taking place while you're busy. And then you kind of have to address that stack and open the mail and say, okay, you know, what do you do about career and, and, you know, whatever else. Um, and so, you know, thankfully I, I found another firm, that, you know, sort of took me in and gave me a consulting position and that's worked out really well and have now done a handful of projects in the private equity world. And that's funny, you know, and sort of like my early twenties, I thought, you know, my dream job would be kind of doing a lot of the things that I got up and get to work on today. And so, um, you know, you do it bit by bit, um, but, you know, you just had, kind of have to get out there and just, and one of the key things is just giving it a try, right? It, you know, it's not going to happen if you just sort of sit there and wish things were different or, or sort of yearn for the past or, you know, wish for something else, or, you know, if you're not willing to just be vulnerable and get out there and do it, right? Um, you know, like today is an example is you just kind of get in the studio and flip on the lights and record and see what happens. But, um, you know, certainly nothing will happen if you, if you don't, right? So. It's really inspiring story. Tell me about your progress over three to four years now. So where are you today in your, in your health recovery? Um, so, you know, spinal cord injury is, is a very long haul. Um, neurological damage will always be there. And I, I just really need to take great care of myself. So I'm certainly mindful to exercise a lot. I do a lot of yoga, a lot of stretching. Um, you know, sleep is huge. Um, and at the same time, like I'm, you know, I think I listened to one of your episodes and you were talking about running a five minute mile, which you're no longer doing. Right. And I was sort of in the same place. I'd run a, a five twenty the day before my accident. So I hear you, you know, it, it's different. Um, but you know, again, you just kind of have to be grateful for what you have. And I, I can get out there and play tennis and go, you know, to different parts of the world and spend time with my friends. And, um, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm letting it hold me back. I, the biggest reality that you kind of have to deal with is, is pain. Right. And, um, there are definitely a lot of days where I just feel like I got in the wrong rugby match, but, um, that's just kind of part of the new deal. So you've, you've got pretty much normal movement back and sensation back, or is it still different from how it used to be? I wouldn't say that, um, you know, on the outside, it definitely looks like that. And on the inside, it just feels different. Um, but you know, there, there are definitely some deficits and things that you have to work with, but it's, um, it's amazing how the progress keeps coming and you keep working at it. And then. Um, it's really a matter of just, you know, set the goal and then figure out a way to make it happen. Right. And so whether it was getting back to work or traveling to some faraway place or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's, it's, um, not a question of, you know, where you're starting. It's, it's how do you get to that finishing point that you want to arrive at? And with your new perspective on life, are you doing things that you weren't doing before? Uh, I did take quite a bit of time to do some sort of bucket list things and, um, and, you know, spent a lot of time out in the world and, and to some pretty remote places in Africa and the Middle East and did a lot of sort of, this is another anecdote from surviving survival, but travel can be kind of a key um, way of healing and sort of overriding what the author refers to as these mental maps or sort of like the way that you conduct your life, right? And this is a way to turn a page and go see and do all these different things that force you to adapt to a different environment pretty radically. Um, 
And those were some experiences that I really enjoyed. I remember before setting out from Africa, I was, you know, kind of having a margarita with a friend and, you know, still pretty deep COVID in the middle of 7th Avenue where we're still sitting out on the sidewalk and kind of cheers and said, you know, I'm about to do something I never could have done beforehand. Um, and again, you know, sort of the work role that I'm in now, investing in um, the private equity side of technology, you know, I, I never was doing beforehand. And so um, just kind of embracing the journey forward. And if you were talking to somebody else who'd been through what you went through and they come out from surgery and, and they're woken up and, and you're having a chat with them and saying, you know, how to think about the years ahead, what would you be saying to them? I think the biggest one is just keep your friends and family close and your supporters. I mean, nothing huge gets done by anybody alone, right? And this took an enormous um, you know, group of people to get me back to where I am and make my story possible. But I think that's the biggest one um, is just involve as many people as you can and you know, keep your loved ones informed and updated and make sure that they're involved because you know, you're going to be doing a lot of the brutal day to day on your own, right? Everyone has their jobs and their families and their responsibilities. And so um, having that support network, I, I think, you know, made the difference between success and, you know, potential failure for me. Um, and then keeping track of things is huge, too. You know, I started, you know, when I could eventually write, just putting down in a very simple way the exercises and things that I did every day not to you know keep track of it or, or whatever or have it for any kind of posterity but really just to say you know okay I woke up and did it today you know and then you could see you know I did it three or four times this week I know I need to go do five or six and you're kind of thinking they're like oh I really don't want to but it sort of forces you to stay on track so um you know what gets measured gets done that's another big one and then you know, not slipping into the hole, right? Um, you can visit dark places. It's not okay to stay there. And so, you know, negativity is a really tough mindset to operate from, even on the tough days. You know, sometimes all you do is your accomplishment is just getting up and getting through that day, right? Living to fight for tomorrow. Um, and you're going to have a lot of those. I really like that quote. You can slip into dark places, but it's not okay to stay there. That one I actually got um, from a a parent of a fellow spinal cord injury survivor. And so, you know, another thing that's really been big for me out of this whole thing is just helping other people that are going through it. And so that, you know, that one, I can't even attribute to myself. That was, uh, that was somebody, you know, a father of a, of a son who was in intensive care at that time. In my book, the idea mindset, I talk about the emotional journey of change that people go through in all sorts of different kind of change environments. And and in that emotional journey, as you say, you know, there, there's usually somewhere in the curve that you feel in a pretty dark place, whether, whether it's your kind of experience or, you know, something a bit less traumatic, but still significant, like a change of job or a change of location or whatever. When you think back to your darkest times, what are the things that helped you? I mean, you've already talked about the friends and family around you. What are other things that helped you to bring yourself out from that place? Yeah, I think there were a couple of those like really dark holes for me. Obviously, one that I mentioned was sort of the initial unlock moment, right? Where you can't really move that well, you can't get care, you didn't have career focus. And then, you know, I'd say there was a wave of COVID kind of in early 2022, where also, you know, I'd gotten well, but had, you know, the work project that I was on had just concluded. And sort of again, my whole calendar gets wiped and everything. And sort of goes back to some of those ingredients that I, 
sort of mentioned at the onset that I think are pretty important for fulfillment, but it's like your relationships with your friends and family. And then, you know, a focus, whether it's rebuilding your body or a career or going to achieve some lifelong goal, something that will draw out your energy, or then, you know, just kind of taking care of yourself, your wellness, your time in nature. And, and so if you, you know, find yourself in a really tough, dark scenario, just leaning into one of those three can be a good way to kind of get out of it, right? And say, okay, you know, I'm going to focus on some project or focus on going to the gym every day or, you know, call a loved one that I haven't spoken with in a while. Like, you know, any one of those things is just a way to get going. All you really need is momentum, right? Because inertia is the killer. It's really when you get stuck at a standstill and there's kind of nothing going on. And so, um, you know, getting a little bit of momentum through one of those three channels is kind of a good way to start. I love that. So we're recording here coming up to spring in 2023. What's coming up for you this year? What are your plans ahead? Uh, quite a bit. Um, so again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pretty uh, deep into a, a current project with work. And then um, I actually have a trekking trip coming up with um, the same, a lot of the friends that were there on that initial night in Bhutan and so kind of doing some fun travels and then obviously you know looking forward to you know continuing to build out these next steps of my career that's also been piecemeal it's not like you know I kind of went straight from leaping out of the ICU to sprinting again it's um, been more of a you know project bigger project bigger project and then you know continue to move the ball on those things and that, that's kind of really where my focus is. Fantastic. And where can people find out more about you if they want to hear more about your story or connect in with you? I have a website, mikeot.net, um, and that has some of my writing and other podcast appearances on there. So that's probably the easiest way. Fantastic. We'll put it in show notes. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For trauma survivor Mike Ott, it was seeing the Arthrash quote in his mind, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. Taking one day at a time was the path he needed to follow in order to retake control of his life and career. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your story with such honesty and openness. Thank you for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you. It's great to be here. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.